imagine a world in which PTSD no longer robs from millions who suffer. You don't want to get help because you're embarrassed. You don't want to tell people the dark stuff that you've went through. That stigmatism of you can't talk to people it is so true. I just didn't feel like I wanted to open up to anybody or tell them what I was going through. Post-traumatic stress is not a disorder. It's an injury that can be healed quickly so that those who suffer get back to thriving in their families, communities, and mission. And I said, I yeah. don't want to, I, I can't, I don't want to live this trauma again. Yeah. And he goes, yeah. you don't have to. Yeah. And I said, yeah. what? The hospital I went to and the experts, they forgot to tell me I can heal. I didn't know that I can get rid of PTSD. Each week, we tell a skeptical world what is possible with stories of those who have successfully cured their trauma. I wanted so desperately to be a good mother and get my life back, so I found Life After PTSD, and I started driving and listen. I called my boyfriend and said, hello, I've got something you need to listen to. This is Life After PTSD. Well, I want to welcome everybody to another episode of Life After PTSD. My name is Jeff McLaughlin here from Orlando, Florida, but I've got my buddy Alan Canerva on the line as always up in the merry old land of Guelph, Ontario. How's it going, bud? Perfect. And you, Jeff? I am doing well. So we have a guest today. Oh, yeah. Talk to me about your guest sitting right next to you up there in Guelph in the warm, the, the beautiful, warm, sunny weather of Guelph right now. Well, you know, Jeff, you've trained with me, and I really like to talk about commitment, what commitment means. You know, if you're committed to change, if you're committed to healing, what does that mean? And and so our guest today is Danny Devine, and, and just being here today absolutely is the definition of being committed. She drove probably the better part of an hour. We're in a bit of a snow blizzard here. The uh, snow truck or the snow plows haven't hit the road yet, but I'm telling you the emergency vehicles are out. So wow. she made that trek. And on the way, she said, can I pick you up anything? So this girl's committed. Did she go <laughs> to Timmy's? Canadian. Did she go to Timmy's for you? True Canadian I offered. Yeah, oh, he my wasn't goodness. a taker. So Danny, I was up there, what was it, a month ago, Alan? Somewhere in that range? I mean, by the time this airs, probably be a bit longer, I should say. But um, I, I can't imagine snow there right now because the weather was gorgeous when I was up there before. Like, that was the hardest part of leaving. No offense, Alan, it wasn't you. It was the weather. So I can't imagine what you guys are dealing with right there and how drastic that change is. Hey, Danny, good to talk to you. Glad you're here. Thanks you for coming too, in and yeah. uh, being a willing participant to sit in the hot seat. Just, just before Danny jumps in, I think this is such a really good time uh, to say Danny was one of the first participants on the inaugural Consanio Trauma, so Healing Trauma Workshop that we held two weekends ago. Cool. And uh, she came and uh, with her sister, and, and that is really special for me. So it's uh, Danny's our first guest after our first two-and-a-half-day weekend workshop where we taught people just the public, peer support people, people with trauma fight. There was three retired police officers. There was a retired military person. There was a couple of clinicians and just some really caring people in the room. And Danny was part of that group. It was a runaway success, but take it away, Danny. Honestly, it was a fantastic first exposure to the world of NLP and this type of therapy. I mean, it's like I said to the group when I went up to the front for my demonstration, I said, this is for science. <laughs> you know, I'm a very science minded person. Yeah. And I'm the guy that has to see, you know, the brain scans and all the data and the scientific research that goes into these things. And of course, my sister had worked with Tara previously and she introduced me to this workshop and essentially said, if you're not doing anything, which I know you're not because you're a hermit, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be coming to this workshop with me. Ain't family and great. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It just threw me right to the wolves. <laughs> that's that's an accurate I, phrase uh, right there. Yes, that is very true. <laughs> but it was honestly such a welcoming experience. And I was I was 
honestly mind blown at the end of it. And going into it, no offense to either of you, but I told Alan, I was highly skeptical. You know, my sister had shown me the public invitation, which is essentially just a very rough outline of what to expect that weekend. And I, I kind of scoffed and without telling my sister, I was like, oh yeah, we're going to talk ourselves better. Like, that's great. Sign me up. We can do some yoga while we're at it. (laughs) 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 But, you know, I said, I'm willing to do this. You've spoken me up. So now I have to go and prove myself. (laughs) Hey, Danny, (laughs) I got to tell you something real quick. You're a skeptic and I'm a skeptic and I love it. And and if you've listened to enough of our episodes, which I know that you're going to go and binge watch or binge listen to the the rest of the podcast for the rest of the week. I get that. You know, I I would do the same if I were you. But, you know, when you listen to the shows, you will hear time and time again, we welcome the skeptics, right? We we need those. Those keep us honest. Bring them. Go on. And you absolutely proved me wrong. So I'm happy to say it. Um, by the end of this weekend's workshop, I had offered to, like we say, demonstrate the skills that we learned. And Alan said, you know, bring us your worst, bring us the big bad memory that triggers you to even think about it. And like I said, for science, I told the group, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell you all about it. And, uh, triggered myself, (laughs) but ended up going through the whole series of exercises with Alan. And at the end of it, I couldn't even find the word to describe my experience or how I remembered it because it had been years. Well, never, I should say that I had ever associated the word calm with an experience like that. So I, I sat there and stared at Alan just blankly, like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't feel anything. <laughs> He's giving you, me prompt words like calm. You know? You, you know the look, Jeff? You know the where the head sort of tilts left and right? I do. Saying, okay. I do. We, it's, you, yeah, it's like the little puppy dog the, look. We know it. Yeah. yeah. As you think about those events now, what does that make you feel? And there's this, uh, this quizzical... I don't know what you're talking about. Can we can we just do just like a public service announcement that we're against drugs and all that? So this is not drug related. (laughs) Just they need to know that there are no no drugs involved here. No drugs. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Hey, Danny, let's do back up for me for a second here, because you told me off air that the trauma was 22. So we're going to talk about that in a second. And then, of course, your experience. But but who is Danny before that trauma? Give me like the overview of of life leading up to that trauma at 22, if you would. You know, Jeff, it's been a long time since I was able to introduce myself as Danny. I felt like my experiences and who I was became my identity. And when that was lost, I didn't really know who I was anymore. Mm. Um, And that's a common story to many who are on this podcast. And you guys are more than familiar with that. But, you know, I, I became a hermit and I laugh about it now. But I basically said goodbye to all my close friendships. I stopped talking to people. I disappeared. I work in an office now as an administrator. So far from anything I was doing on the road. Mm. Um, and prior to that, you know, I like to describe myself as being someone who loves to travel and learn and get out there and forge these interactions and build these relationships. It was very important to me and I'm a very loving and outgoing person, but all of that really just disappeared with my diagnosis because you have to come to terms with the rest of your life looking like that. And it was this shroud of fear that you live in that, you know, everybody describes differently, but at the end of the day, I just, I wasn't who I used to be. This this is such an important to jump in on. Yeah. After my diagnosis, knowing that I was going to have to live this way. Yeah. You have to come to terms with what the rest of your life is like, I think is what she said. Like that's a line right there. Holy cow. Yeah. 
I get diagnosed with a mental illness and I have the rest of my life. That that's the issue. That that's yeah. the elephant in the room. That's the thing we need to squash. And that's just what it is because you know, going back into my experience a little bit, I've tried dozens of different types of therapies. I was very committed to getting better. And even in the midst of it, I went through my days of, you know, suicidal ideation and being hospitalized for that. And unfortunately, it was a result of a specific type of trauma or a specific type of therapy, rather, that forced me to relive that trauma. What was that therapy? That was uh, EMDR. And I was working with... uh, We openly say the therapies that don't work online. So there we go. I'm going to broadcast that I had a (laughs) negative experience with that one. But that sent me right to the hospital because essentially being forced to relive these traumas is it's not something that you want to do. And it seems like an insurmountable task to some people, some people sure talking about it helps. But for me, I was not one of those people. Um, you know, you have feelings that you can't relate to anybody and nobody's going to hear your story and, um, recognize what you've been through. But at the end of the day, I said to my sister, you know, it's like being told that you've lost a limb and the entire trajectory of your life changes because you have to come to terms with the fact that there is no cure. There's no way to grow your arm back. Um, there's crutches, of course, that you can use, but that's what the rest of your life looks like now. And you can wave goodbye to everything that you imagined having two arms would help you do. <laughs> and I joke about it, but you know, in the midst of that, in the thick of it, you lose your life and you lose all concept of who you are. And we talk about these people who resign from different forms of therapy and withdraw and say that this isn't working or that isn't working and looking at, you know, this is the rest of my life. I either accept it or I'm done. And Danny is no longer with us. And and Jeff, it's probably time for Danny to explain what her profession was just so, so the listeners can understand the degree of uh, understanding of medical and science that she really has. And just before she does that, just to get clarity on EMDR, I know some people who have done really, really well with EMDR. Mm -hmm. There are some phenomenal EMDR EMDR practitioners out there. And uh, if if you're fortunate enough to work with a gifted EMDR practitioner, it it, uh, could have a high degree of success with you. Um, But there's also a, a number of people like Danny who have really negative experiences of it. Mm-hmm. Understood. And I, I talk about that openly just because it's, it's like I said, I want to be able to share this and let other people know that they're not alone because, you know, you can say that till you're blue in the face, but when you're in it, you feel so isolated and so abandoned by, you know, your friends, your family, the healthcare system as a whole, you really feel like you have to either advocate for yourself or just surrender. And these different therapies that you're surrendering to are you know, useless as far as I'm concerned, because four years later, here we are, and I'm still just as bad. And until I was introduced to Alan and NLP, like I said, the trajectory of my life was completely different. I don't even know what to imagine for myself now, my future, because I have one. (laughs) So Danny, I need to tell you that that is exactly what you said right there is why we do this show and why we do it with urgency. Because you know something now, you've experienced something that has really been, you know, I'll say the word life-changing, but I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth when I say that. Not at all. Yeah. And so, you know, when other people are being treated in, well, first of all, being re-traumatized or being treated in lesser protocols or things like that that are not, you know, demonstrating long-term efficacy or something, we feel the responsibility, you know, to get out there and to, to give that message. This is a message of hope. 
right? And you're a Absolutely. part of that. So welcome to the team, by the way. Thank you Just so much. Love signing Glad people to be up here. for that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, military and police get a lot of the press, and uh, Danny's in the EMS world, so they get called out on some of the most horrific scenes possible. They're really well trained. They have a, a great grounding in their profession. But even in these professions, there is no training on mental fitness, no. on your own personal mental fitness, how to keep yourself safe. And it's the same for police and it's the same for military personnel and firefighters. There's no education on how to keep yourself safe. And, and again, when you listen to uh, Danny's dis description of being <clears throat> diagnosed and the finality of that, no wonder people don't want to put up their hand and say, I'm hurting. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> So tell us your story. Would you share the story of Absolutely. Where, where you were and what happened? Yeah, so I worked uh, with Niagara EMS for two years when I was in school. Phenomenal team. I loved being there. I've loved every single one of my preceptors. And I feel like I learned a lot. I graduated, you know, with good grades and all the rest of it. I loved working as a paramedic. I would do anything to be on the road. And further to that, I submitted, you know, upwards of 50 applications across Canada for different services, found myself working in Clarenville, Newfoundland, which is pretty remote. <laughs> so we the were yeah, on the rock. Um, so we worked 24 seven as our crews, um, on rotation and you would work for six days a week. You'd have a three day break or so. And 24 seven means that you're constantly on call. And I think a lot of that, um, was a disadvantage because you're constantly out there and you're never allowed to debrief, so to speak, from these calls and various services will implement critical incident stress debriefing and they'll sit you down and talk to you afterwards. But, you know, you're always next to your peers or you're looking at your employer and you risk jeopardizing your future in the field if you admit any sign of weakness. So it's next to impossible to actually acknowledge or admit that something's going on when you're in the field. Um, and I mean, after the fact, even then there was so much shame surrounding it and the denial that comes with diagnosis, you know, I laugh about it now, but I must've had five different clinicians diagnose me. And I said, screw you. I'm a paramedic. I have nightmares. That's the easy answer. Like, tell me what I don't know. <laughs> and in school, they teach you to recognize the symptoms of these things. But when you're in the thick of it, you're not going to be looking out for yourself. If you're a good medic, you're looking out for your patients. So I was taken off the road. And unfortunately, four, four years after the fact, you know, I'm finally finding a therapy like this that has just been swept under the rug by so many people. But at the end of the day, I could have been back in the field and, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I was a good medic. I loved working on the trucks. And now it's like every little thing is just a negative permanent reminder of that. And it wasn't a negative experience as a whole. So it's, uh, it's hard to come to terms with that looking backwards and then looking again at my future that I now have because you almost feel floundered and like your brain has abandoned you. You know, I can't trust the organ in my head anymore <laughs> that I once trusted to make all these big decisions. But yeah, at the end of the day, um, I've worked with a lot of different providers and like Alan said, EMDR can be a successful tool, but unfortunately, um, I was not one of those who benefited from reliving my experience. 
So your sister then brings you to this training, probably under the auspice of we're going shopping or something like that. Or what did she? What did she? <laughs> might as well have yeah. Been. <laughs> what lie did she sell you? Days of shopping. <laughs> it's gonna be a great trip. You know, it's awesome. <laughs> so she gets you to this training, and and you come in as the skeptic. So what are your first thoughts? Well, first of all, how much information did she give you before you came and met with Alan and Tara? What did you know beforehand? So I laugh because in my family, there's no such thing as a short story, (laughs) but my sister got on the phone with me after having been exposed to this and working with Tara and she must've just gone on for about 45 minutes. And she said, you know, I don't know if I'm making any sense of this. I don't know if I've convinced you that this is a worthwhile endeavor, but this is it. And you're coming with me. <laughs> so I was, Suck it up. Okay, we don't care you what you what? think you're coming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I dove in head first, but like I say, I was, I was hesitant. I was cautiously optimistic because, you know, things like EMDR had sent me backwards so far backwards that I worried about my future. And, <laughs> and if I could, I'm guessing that prior to doing EMDR and maybe some of the other things that you did, there were probably well-meaning people who wanted you to get well and said, hey, I have this. So so they can almost even build up a false hope. And that mm-hmm. hurts too, doesn't it? You know, you have this it major kills. letdown. Yeah. Yeah. And then to have something like that send you backwards is almost the exact opposite of hope because you're thinking that this is something that's going to help you. And no, here I am in the hospital and things are worse than they've ever been. Right. And, you know, like I said, I'm forever indebted to my forensic psychologist that I've been seeing, but again, he teaches coping and he teaches ways to live with this. And when I'm struggling and reach out to him, he says, Danny, use your mindfulness. You know, what's going on, you know, what's happening from a science perspective. So look at this and understand it from the science perspective, you know, tell yourself this isn't the rest of your life, but it is. So, so let's do this before we take a break. I just, I I would be curious to know if there is a question still in your mind, Danny, about just anything, anything that you experienced, like there's got to be you know, a, a provocative question or something that just, man, what is this? How did this work? What is there anything like that, that, you know, maybe Alan there can tackle? Is. Yeah. What is it? Yeah. So the ultimate question that's been plaguing me is how can, after so many years of being diagnosed with PTSD and being traumatized, how can you turn around and fix this in an hour? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good and question. And it's not clicking. You know, he showed me firsthand, but there's still a big part of my brain that doubts that. Yeah. And it's, it's such an impedance to look at that because, you know, how many other people are hesitant to come forward because they've got 30, 40 years of trauma on their back. Or they've again, got 30, 40 years of clinical experience. They're a clinician. Exactly. And that's something that we wrestle against as well. And I, this is why, and, and this is the, my message to all the clinicians that have been a part of training and that have kind of jumped on in our world. I have so much respect for a licensed mental health counselor, right, who's been doing whatever they've been doing for however many years right? With, with more, say a a traditional training that does teach or advocate in some sense implies that PTSD is that illness. And when those people are willing to come and do a training and I mean, their paradigm shifts, that is, I don't think most folks understand that is a major change in, in literally their school of thought. And I have such a respect for those who go through that process and are willing to take that risk. And then, you know, because the reward for them is great. I mean, they become the greatest salesmen of anything. You don't, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, what happens when somebody gets trained and they take that knowledge back to their practice and now they, they start calling clients that they haven't seen in five years. Hey, listen, come back in, right? I got something that's going to work now. You know, we've seen that time and time again 
And I have such respect for that because I know the, uh, you know, to change someone's belief about something like this is a massive shift and it is not done lightly for sure. Even those clinicians, I would say that advocate for their patient's wellness. I mean, it's like Alan said in the past, if you advocate for someone's wellness, how can you reject a concept like this that could heal them rather than treating them, right? It it was Ken, a doctor, family practice. He was part of the uh, critical critical incident team for the police. And, and, uh, And he witnessed the first demo we did when he was on the training. And I remember at the break, I went outside, came back in, and I met him in the hall, and he was beet red. His face was flushed. I said, Ken, are you okay? Were you triggered? He said, no, I'm so angry. Yeah. And I said, yeah. what's up, man? I thought, I'd, I thought I'd angered him, right? Yeah, I thought Alan was getting He's, punched. <laughs> That's yeah. what's going on, yeah. And, and, and he, he lives in Florida, but he, he used to be a Toronto police officer before he got into family practice. So, you know, I'm looking Canadian to Canadian, and he said, Alan... He said, I've never had a tool. I, I, I do talk therapy. I do coping therapy with people. I send them away. They sound better. But every night I worried if tonight was the night with some of these people. And he said, and I just watched you do something in 60 minutes or 75 minutes that no one's ever shared with me. I'm so angry at the system. It's infuriating. Yeah. I mean, especially in a system that constantly admits that it has room to grow. And yet here we are pushing this to share with other people. Like I would scream it far and wide if I could. Right, <laughs> That's right. why I'm here today. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and so, so Danny, so, you know, when we had our open house here, when we opened shop and Shane and other EMT came, um, we invited the EMS. I talked to the deputy commissioner down there. I invited them to your workshop that you were attended. I said, dropped off invitations. We invited the uh, reserve unit, the artillery unit in town. We invited I talked to the training officer at the at the fire hall, and I invited the police. Unreal, and you know, so and yet, many and yet you watch TV, <laughs> yeah. and they're on TV saying yeah. we, we have to solve the problem. Yeah, or let's you know initiate this new protocol where everybody sits down together, and it's a very kumbaya, but nobody admits anything. Here's something that we've seen too. We've seen the president. We've seen. I mean, just this past year, there's been a, a task force put together to literally end military suicide. Right. They've put that together. And so what do we do as a team? We've reached out to, to congressmen, to senators, you name it, and have barely gotten an audience with some of them. And we're going, man, here, here's our perspective. We're going, we know what we have to change the world here. We can give you this. You can be the hero. We don't even need to be acknowledged here. You be the hero. Go take this to the president. Go do this. And it's, you know, we're on the bottom stack of whatever the agenda is of so many things. And it's, it is frustrating. It's hard, but we have to keep pushing and it's okay. One of these days we're going to break through. We're going to tip the scales and we won't be able to be ignored anymore because stories like yours are too loud to, uh, to silence, to muffle. And, and so, and Jeff, and Jeff, you make the absolute point. The problem is the people talking about it, the politicians don't want to be, be seen as making a mistake. So they surround themselves with the same people all the time. Correct who are saying the same thing. It's a disorder. You diagnose it. It's an illness. You medicate it. So they're surrounding themselves with the thinkers who are all in the same plane. There's no new thinking. You know, Einstein said you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that caused the problem. Mm. So, you know, we and, and where we're going to solve this is the groundswell, the Dannys. Yeah. You know, more and more people are coming to you and me 
who are on the same plane, that they've actually healed their PTSD. Now, some of them have done it through a form of a yoga. Some of them have done it through other ways. But there are people who also believe that trauma is an injury. Vets have lobbied that trauma is an injury. It'll be a groundswell. It's not going to be anybody wearing brass that decides to change this. I'm sorry no. to say that if there's brass listening to it, you won't do it. You won't do it till your membership has had enough. And I hate to say it too, but I mean, until it happens to you on a personal level, it doesn't always hit home. And for me, yes. the biggest stressor was watching some of my friends that I went to school with and coworkers that I worked with in Niagara and, you know, elsewhere too, that are struggling now in their careers and not necessarily on any large scale, but even the small things. And it breaks my heart because the possibility of even imagining them being diagnosed with anything or having to experience the agony that I went through is so hopeless feeling and heartbreaking. It's just, it's awful. And I feel like, you know, until the brass, like Alan says, or the politicians have this happen to their family, their brothers, their sisters, it, I'm afraid just doesn't have the impact until, you know, we compounding on their door. <laughs> yeah. So, so as we move to a break here, I just want, I'm going to take the opportunity right now to call, maybe call to action our listeners. This is something that we don't do enough of, but you know, as you're hearing, you know, you're hearing this young woman's story right here, guys, this is the reason that you need to be sharing this information. Like we give you this as a resource. And I know that so many of our, our listeners do such a great job of that already, but man, you want to do so. This is the thing that you can do. We don't ask you for, you know, money. We don't ask you for that. What we ask you to do is to share the message, right? Tell people you have somebody in your family could be in your immediate household that is affected by this. If not, it's somebody you work with. It's in the extended family. You know, somebody is affected by trauma. They don't need to suffer anymore. That's why we do this show. All right. So guys, hang on. We're going to take a break here in a second, reset some things. When we come back after the break, lots more to talk with, uh, with you, Danny. And so, uh, keep on listening with us. We'll be right back. So here we are back, Life After PTSD, talking with Danny, 26-year-old young woman up in Ontario, hanging out with Alan Kinerva up there. And uh, Danny, I just want to jump right back in, if we could. And, you know, Alan brings you up uh, to have your trauma cleared. And I just, give me your give me your reaction, if you, like your sort of afterthoughts on what happened to you as he was working with you. Like, just walk me through that, if you would. Just, just before Danny does that, Jeff, um, the new the new uh, workshop that we're running, we're actually doing uh, the the NLP pure NLP version or the trauma focused NLP version yeah. of of the protocol, including um, some key attributes from timeline therapy. And what we ended up doing, Danny wasn't up front for more than twenty minutes. I'd say at most. I, I didn't even know oh, it was so, that short, Alan. I thought it was like forty five or something. Twenty minutes? No, <laughs> no. no. I mean, you should set up a drive-through. You don't even have to have people step out of their car. I'm dead serious. You know, can we set up a drive-through trauma clearing next to the Timmy's in town? Would that be all right? It, it, it's a it's another episode, Jeff. But, but I'll, I'll let Danny tell her experience from the front of the room. Okay. It was definitely uh, an experience. I'll say that. So going into it, this is something that you know I haven't discussed with my family. I've never said aloud before. This isn't something that I've spoken about in therapy with the EMDR sessions I went through. And like we said, in 20 minutes, I was able to tell my story without so much as a crack in my voice. And 
as much as Alan says, you know, I was very diplomatic and methodical in the way that I told the story initially because we're used to having to do reports and these kinds of things. Um, I was very emotionless about it when I told the story, but I couldn't hide that. You know, we think our masks are so good. Her, I thought I was being her, so stoic. <laughs> her, her subjective unit of distress at the beginning was 10. Yeah. Uh, and a solid 10. I think I said 15, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> on a scale of 1 to 10, it was a 15. So this is this is the big bad one. This is the worst of the worst. And it's like I said, I can tell it now. I, I was out on a call with my partner, and we essentially ended up, we found ourselves in a domestic abuse situation. And... In order to separate the husband from the wife and get the treatment to the wife that was very much needed, we ended up um, taking the husband, the abuser in this situation, out of the scene. And I was the attending paramedic on that call. So, you know, you make up whatever excuse. We're getting you to the hospital. It's happening. You're not going to say no to us. (laughs) We're getting your wife the care that she needs. And upon arriving to the hospital... I found out that one of our coworkers, a female paramedic from the next town over, had been brought in because she had killed herself. And when I used to speak about it, I said, you know, she had attempted to kill herself. And there was all this language that I was using that was really tiptoeing around the situation and the severity of it in my own mind, because this isn't somebody that I knew. But to me, it's my peer. That might as well be my sister. And she knew exactly what pills to take. And looking back on that, I mean, there wasn't a way to stop it. But in the heat of the moment in the ER, I remember my partner looking at me from the trauma room and he's in there helping them to attempt to recess this woman. And he looks over at me and I had for four plus years believed that this look on my partner's face was of desperation. You know, you need to get in here. Why are you over there with that jackass? (laughs) Um, But I'm you know, this is my responsibility. I'm stuck here with said jackass and he's my patient and I can't come over there and help you as much as I want to. And it's that feeling of helplessness that I learned over the years comes to form these traumas. But this is something that I'm sharing with you now that I had never spoken of. So Mm. to be able to go from, you know, a 15 on a scale of one to 10 of it being that upsetting to me to be able to tell it, like I said, without so much as a crack in my voice is, groundbreaking. And I wish that I could share that with every single one of my friends, because even if you're not diagnosed, there are things that we struggle to tolerate. There are things that we can't swallow, be it on the road, be it in your relationships, be it in your home life. And this is a coping tool that's above all of the other coping tools. It, it just, it blows my mind that on such a widespread scale, people are suffering and they don't have to be. Hey, Alan, I, I want to get your perspective real quick. But she, she talked about being a 15 on that scale of 1 to 10, 0 to 10. Tell me, um, you know, you've done so many of these demos. I've been with you in the room with so many of these uh, times. Describe what you saw when she was in that full-on, you know, she began to tell the story. What kind of negative emotional arousal state was she in from your perspective? It was incredibly stoic, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, you know the, the, the process, Jeff. So first we have to get in rapport. So we... We talked a bit and we joked a bit at the front of the room and and, and uh, Danny is fair skinned with blonde hair. So um, any sort of sympathetic arousal or negative emotional arousal shows up really, really fast. And um, and we are talking. And as soon as we 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 moved into 
So, you know, Danny, you know, just tell us a little bit, or if you don't want to talk about it, just run, run the tape through in your head, the movie in your head. And, and it was just instantaneous. It was instantaneous. And she chose, she said, no, no, I'll tell the story. And, and she did that classic uh, firefighter, police officer, as Danny said, anybody who writes reports, she was giving it in, in like a metronome. It's a play-by-play. <laughs> yeah, it was at night. She was in the shed. He was in, but they're, they're, it's not continuous story. It's not fluid. It, it's uh, fragmented. It, it seems very functional to Danny, but it's as if she's writing bullet points for a technical <laughs> report. You know, arrived at 8.15, suspect left the house at 8.17. Jackass now in the truck. <laughs> yeah, jackass now in the truck. Arrive at hospital 9.22, you know, stuck needle in his arm 9.30. It's, it, it's detailed, but it's it's dysfunctional. It's dissociated. Right, right. It, it is. And at the end, she just told it just like she did now. And and then when I asked her, as you as you t- retold that story just now, what does that make you feel? And it was this beautiful, it, it, it was, I, I describe it as the Mona Lisa effect. There's just this law, there's just this beauty that emanates from somebody who's free of that negative emotional state. And their mouth is open. And their mouth is open <laughs> and, you can, and they're smiling and, 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 and then uh, we did the scale and she was down at zero. And and then she, what did you say about your partner? That was that was one of the most beautiful things, right? That there. was what struck me at the end of it is you're able to feel these things and realize these things that you don't realize your brain has been holding on to all these years in my case. But I thought what was a look of desperation and you know, Danny, you need to get your ass in here and help us recess this woman. She's one of ours wasn't at all the expression that I saw. And now when I look back on it, I realized that Brad was looking in on me. He gave me a look like, I'm in here. Are you okay out there? Because he knew what I was going you through. You were with jackass. Yeah, and I'm stuck with jackass, you know. And looking back on that, it just, it made me miss my partner and that friendship so desperately. And that's something that I haven't felt in four years because it was just forever encapsulated in this bubble of shame and you know, you couldn't get into the recess room because you were stuck with said jackass. And it's just, it's incredible to be able to look back on that and realize that wasn't at all the case. It was just how my brain spun it. You know, and and, and it's the same when we listen to Kyle Lundy's story, how he, had, how when he finally got rid of the trauma, he was able to remember that it, it was actually his mate volunteered them for the mission. And it's when Craig Hardcastle cleared his trauma then he re- then he remembered the the six months of humanitarian aid that they flew into that valley right it's always that the, the trauma just locks down and I've had so many clinicians talk to me about oh you're going to do this intervention but my client has no memory yeah and I just <laughs> smile <laughs> you know because we've seen so many times right Jeff we clear the trauma and then people like Danny tell these amazing stories now Danny if I could share can we share how you left the rock Absolutely. So, so Danny was so desperate, so traumatized. And telling myself that I wasn't. (laughs) And telling herself that she left a unit in, in Newfoundland, got all the way back to Ontario, actually snuck off the rock, never told anybody she was leaving. No, I, um, planned it. Oh, it was well thought out. <laughs> I thought I was doing great. But this this is a desperate person who does this, right, Jeff? Her partner phoned her two days later? No, no. He called me the day after I got home. It might have even been the evening that I got home. Yeah. Um, wanting to make plans, wanting to hang out with me. And 
I said, I'm in Ontario, Brad. You know, I'm not, I'm not even in the country or in the country. <laughs> I speak about it like it's not Canada, but it was a very remote, isolated place. And that's what it felt like. And to be out of it was the only thing that I could picture at the end of that. It was everything that I needed. So to be so ravished mm. by, by those events, to have to escape and not tell her partner and then to live with whatever emotions came with that decision, that leaving for four years. And Danny's young. You know, when that happened, she was 22, she's 26 now. You know, just, just future pace if if that had continued. Now, mm. you know, thank thank whoever you thank for your introduction to the, to the uh, psychotherapist, psychologist, I guess yeah. he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and your dad's a retired police officer, right? He is also and, diagnosed. <laughs> yeah, and, and that and the psychologist is a friend of your father's, correct? He is, yeah. Yeah. So you know, thankfully, Danny, compared to some other people, had access to very high functioning coping skills from a very qualified person who, because of the familial connection, is very connected to Danny. Mm -hmm. You know, thank thankful for him in her life over those last four years. Uh because if she'd gone through prolonged exposure or, or more of what that other one she mentioned earlier, we don't know what the outcome might have been. Right. Hey, Alan, because there may be somebody that gets a hold of this episode, maybe we give it to, you know, when it's edited, Danny's going to send it out to her clan or something that maybe hasn't listened to something like this. Why, let's let's not neglect to address her question that we asked before, she asked before the break. And I would love for you to handle this. Like she was in disbelief and amazement how in 20 minutes or so, how is this possible? How could she be cured of her trauma? Would you speak to that just, you know, a bit scientific and, you know, talk to why that that is possible so that people know what it is that we are essentially preaching on this show? I think there's a lot of points of light that corroborate this. Uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett from Northeastern University wrote a book called How Emotions Are Created. And, and she talks about the phenomenon of emotion being created through a memory. And then when you look of, at the research of uh, Karim Nader at McGill University into the consolidation and then the reconsolidation of a memory, and that research is replicated in many places. And then there's another body of knowledge called integration of new information into a memory. This is what uh, the, the uh, window into why this works so fast. And, and, and as simply put as I can right here, when you uh, are in an environment, when you learn something new, so Danny learned something new at the night of that trauma. When that and in that moment, that that mo that memory is in a period what's called labelization or instability. When that memory finally stabilizes, it's called consolidated. When you reactivate that memory, it goes into a period of labelization again, instability until it becomes stable and reconsolidates. Now, the old school thinking used to be that you had a memory, you reactivated it, and when it got stable again, it went back to the same place and form. But the new thinking is, is that it's sequential, that every time you activate and reconsolidate the memory, the next time you reactivate that memory, you reactivate the newly reconsolidated memory. So it's like a series of steps. And in that period of labelization or instability, the memory can be negatively or positively impacted. So a person who was traumatized, every time they have the memory, the memory gets worse and their feelings become more intense. And, and David Kessler talks about this um, 
aspect in his book, Capture, Unraveling the Mysteries of Mental Illness. So there's a lot of these points of light corroborating when you circle it. It's not NLP as magic. There are, are serious, significant uh, leading edge thinkers talking about why this works. So what we do during the NLP protocol is we reactivate the memory. We, you know, I, I said, it's dipping your toe in the hot water. And when that, as soon as that memory is reactivated, then we stabilize the person. And this opens up a period of labelization, instability of the memory that lasts anywhere from an hour to six hours. And at that moment, the introduction of the techniques we do, the movie theater, and uh, we're changing the submodalities of the movie. And then we allow that movie, uh, the movie becomes stable to the, to the person, to Danny. And then we let the movie reconsolidate in the stabilized form. It's that simple and it's that fast. Now, the researchers who are onto this have tried a number of techniques during the period of labelization. Some of them use chemicals, some of them use some sort of other stimulation. Uh, changing the submodalities works so well. Again, you know, we've seen research reports you know, we're well, well over 90% success rate. Um, you know, if you talk to the clinicians who know this protocol, the NLP protocol, most of us will say we have 100% success rate if the person wants to get rid of their trauma. And dive in. And dive <laughs> in. That's a, that's a Coles Notes science view of it. But, it. but it's documented. What's happening inside the brain, Jeff, is documented in science. Danny, I, Alan, that's brilliant. Thank you for that. I, again, I think that's just so beneficial that that this episode is essentially self-contained because you've got this amazing story, the before, the after, and then people are going, how? There's a there's a Danny out there listening that's going, I don't believe it, right? I don't believe it, and I think yeah, it's so necessary. It's nonsense. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but to speak to that science to understand what is happening in the brain, you know, that we're not just doing magic tricks here, and it's just incredible. Hey, Danny, so here's here's what I think the best way to land this episode is, is to give you the chance. What do you say to that person who was you three weeks ago, two weeks ago, whatever? Like, what would you say to them right now? Dive in. <laughs> you know, when I look back, when I first came home from Newfoundland, my family says I didn't speak for days. And there's deep-seated beliefs that form in your brain during that period of time. And it doesn't have to do necessarily with one event. But when I came home, I repetitively told them I deserve to be punished. And even now, that resonates so much with me. And Alan's shaking his head because he knows it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I don't have to believe that about myself. But to me, it was, you know, you ran away from this great situation. You ran away from an amazing career where you could help people and be something. And you took yourself off the market, so to speak. Mm. You know, there's no Danny out there on the road anymore. There's good medics, but there's also bad medics. And unfortunately, without Danny to override that, <laughs> mm. I saw it as a disservice to the universe, so to speak. Mm. And to look back on that and realize even today that that belief is so deep seated, I still believe it. And I know that Alan can turn that around <laughs> and he, <laughs> he will <jokes laughs> by Christmas time. So yeah. we'll see where we get. But yeah. this is the thing is all you have to do is be open minded. Mm. All you have to do is accept the possibility that it could happen. And that's all I did. You just you surrender yourself to the therapy. It works. It's magic. And here we are. Hey, Danny, when uh, not I noticed I didn't say if, but when. When Alan gets that belief cleared and you are uh, free of any of those barriers, chains, whatever metaphor you want to use, 
and Danny is being Danny 100% and out just rocking it, doing her thing, literally changing her world. Will you commit to come back on and tell us the the next chapter of your story? We'd love to hear that. Would that be something you could do for, for us? Science. For science. <laughs> yeah, I love science. it. <laughs> Alan, I love that. Not for Alan, not for Jeff. Forget us, right? For science. No. But that's I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's okay. It's totally cool. I'm excited because I, you know, Danny, I think I think what's cool here is is in a sense, for the last couple of years, we've all been missing out on the real Danny. Right. Right. That's and and we're getting that real Danny back. You know, a big piece of that was already was already completed two weeks ago. But now just the the final stages of that. And that's just so cool. And I think um, we don't need two Dannys in the world, but we desperately need the one Danny that we've got. Right. And and, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. And so now that that one's coming back, like we're just uh, we're excited for you and for your journey. Um, Alan, as always, thank you for the work that you're doing. um, Both of you guys, how would be a I mean, Alan, we know I'll give you a chance here to, to let folks know how to connect with you we know your ways and everything but Danny is there a way that you know somebody can connect with you right now or are you just kind of not ready for that if somebody's got a story that they want to share with you what any thoughts on that do you have a blog or anything yeah so you know what I would welcome any and all outreach like I said it feels so isolating to be stuck in it so if that's all you can bring yourself to do is reach out I would be thrilled to hear from you Cool. I How have a blog. Yeah. I haven't uh, written in it since 2017 because things haven't been great. But <laughs> you can find me at uh, Miss Danny Divine, and it's D A N I D E V I N E dot WordPress dot com. Cool. And I'm there. I'm just laying low. <laughs> Alan, how do they connect with uh, you, buddy? Not for long. Yeah. Not for long. So, you know, um, of course, you can always find me at inspiredoutcomes.ca. And, uh, I, you know, for those people who want to know the research behind the trauma-focused NLP, they can go to Consano Group, C-O-N, oh, I can't even spell it. <laughs> no, you got it. C-O-N-S-A-N-O. C-O-N-S-A-N-O-Group.com. <laughs> ConsanoGroup.com. Just scroll down, hit the research link. There's a 40-year history and research of the trauma-focused NLP right there for the reading at, uh, it's, it's incredible, Jeff, just bottom line. It's incredible. Alan, that's how bad of a self promoter you are. You can't even spell your own website and, uh, cause you're, <laughs> you're too busy doing the work, man. And I love it. All right. Well, everybody out there listening, you heard my, uh, my spiel before, and I'm going to say it again, share this episode. All right. There's a Danny out there in your life and, uh, that Danny, uh, needs to hear what this Danny shared today. And so please do that for us. And as always, we ask you to subscribe, make sure that you're in tune with what we are doing every single week. We drop an episode literally every Monday. So you keep listening, we'll keep telling stories and we will catch you next week on Life After PTSD. We're so grateful that you listened to the show today. Now imagine a new normal you get to decide with all its possibilities once you are free of PTSD, because that is what is possible. You're here, which means you're ready. But listening alone will not heal you or those you know who are suffering. Join us on the mission to eradicate PTSD by reaching out to lifeafterptsd.org or in Canada, lifeafterptsd.ca or by sharing this message of hope with someone you know. Hey, Life After PTSD listeners. We're glad that you love other stories of healing, but what about you? 
First Orlando Counseling is the premier trauma therapy center in Central Florida with a full staff of trained clinicians ready to help you clear your trauma without re-traumatization. Childhood abuse, relationship abuse, a traumatic car accident, birth trauma, first responder or military trauma, even phobias. You don't have to live like this. It's time for you to heal. Schedule a consultation today by visiting firstorlandocounseling.com or call 407-514-4470. It's that easy.